Well, please, if you would, turn uh, in your Bible to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses this morning. This is uh, not the word simply of Dr. Luke, but this is the word of the living God, and so we stand in recognition of this, so let's do that now. Let's pray briefly. <clears throat> uh, Gracious uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, the inspirer of these uh, words, uh, who in the mystery of uh, inspiration uh, both uh, used Luke and guided uh, Luke in, in the writing of this narrative, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would make it alive to us, illumine our hearts and minds, and make us receptive uh, to what you would say to us here. We ask in the, in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now in these last days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews uh, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, and they set before the set, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You may return to your seats. Well, when a certain Dallas church decided to split, each faction claimed the building. They filed a lawsuit to that effect. A judge finally referred the matter uh, to a higher court in that denomination. A hearing was held where both sides presented uh, their cases, and uh, a building was awarded to one faction. The other faction left the building and started another church. During the hearing, it came out that the conflict had begun at a church dinner. A certain elder had received a smaller portion of ham than the child next to him. This made its way to the newspapers in Dallas. And you can just imagine how the people of Dallas laughed about that. It brought great discredit to the church uh, and to the Lord Jesus Christ. The tiniest events sometimes can produce great problems. And Luke is describing here another assault uh, by the evil one on the church. Now, in this assault, the evil one is attempting to disrupt the inner peace of the church. 
murmuring erupts, harsh words are spoken, and it's believer against uh, believer. Countless churches and Christian organizations have been destroyed this way. God blesses a ministry, people come to Christ, the church reaches its community, missionaries are sent out, and then someone complains that he or she is not appreciated or is being neglected. Maybe it was a critical glance, a name forgotten, a social gaffe, some imagined offense, and bitter dissension ignites and spreads. That's what we have here in Acts uh, 6. And in the infancy of the church, it would have been disastrous if it had splintered. One of the churches I served in its first years underwent such a division. And it had an impact in uh, affected its ministry for decades. In fact, it never reached the potential it would have had had it not split. And there was an equally serious development here. The leadership was in danger of being distracted from the central task that had been given to them by Christ. Uh, the highest priority that they had. And if, they, if that had been effective, it would have resulted in the neglect of the spread of the gospel. Now, One of the things, if you just think about this, that's obvious is it's saying to us that sooner or later, it's just inevitable that a church will encounter uh, problems. But this text also shows us that the gospel has a remedy for the problems the church encounters. Now, last week we saw that the church uh, was of one heart and mind and with a result that there were no needy people among them. It was a united and generous church. But now it's clear that's not true. The inclusion of this story speaks to a, a common assertion that Luke's gospel and the history of the church are actually just fabrications. Uh, it's uh, commonly said that the Gospels really don't reflect the real Jesus of history, but simply what Christians want to believe about him. But I would submit to you the very presence of this story in More Like It, where the good and the bad and the ugly are all exposed, shows Luke's commitment to accurate historical reporting, but also Luke's uh, transformation uh, by the power of the gospel. The gospel has so gripped Luke that he's honest about the blemishes in the church. You see, the gospel creates a deep honesty because it brings us into relationship with a God who loves truth and integrity. He himself is true and faithful. And it gives us a new identity that makes us complete and perfect in Christ. And so one of the ways that you can actually tell that the gospel's got a hold of you, that you're in its grip, is that you can be honest about your faults and failings. That you don't need uh, to hide them or be defensive when somebody points them out uh, to you. You see them, in fact, as opportunities to 
receive yet more grace and to grow in maturity. Just how do you respond to criticism? Do you bristle when it's offered? Or can you learn from it? Well, this narrative is a case of apparent discrimination. Apparent discrimination. Uh, Luke begins this way. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, and as the church grows rapidly, well, such growth brings with it challenges. And then he goes on to say, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the care of widows is commanded in the Old and New Testaments. It's so important uh, that James writes that it's one of the marks of true religion uh, before God to visit the orphan and widow in their affliction. And it probably wasn't an intentional oversight, but it felt deliberate to those who were being neglected. It felt like one group was being favored and another was being discriminated against. Now, this uh, situation had its roots in a couple of things. One of them was an urban problem in Jerusalem. It was virtuous to be buried in the Holy Land. And so many Jews who lived elsewhere, as they uh, grew old, uh, they would move into Jerusalem so they could be uh, buried there. And eventually, as has been true uh, and still is true today, the men usually died before the women and left a lot of women uh, without any means of support. And these uh, widows ordinarily received care uh, from the synagogues. Well, the rabbis in Palestine gave an additional theological incentive for you to move there. They said the resurrection of the righteous would take place only in Palestine. And therefore, if you died outside of Palestine, you would have to roll underground all the way till you got there. Sounds unpleasant, doesn't it? <laughs> so there came to be many, many more widows in Jerusalem than the congregations could actually uh, care for. And as the church grew, more and more of these widows uh, not only were in the church, but came to the attention of the church. But there's another dimension to this uh, problem. There's a conflict between two groups of people, the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Now, this is a reference to the fact that one group of people in the church spoke only Greek, and another group uh, spoke both Greek and Aramaic. There were synagogues that spoke only Greek for the Hellenists who came to Jerusalem and those that lived there, and there were other synagogues that held their services in uh, Aramaic and, and Hebrew. And so there were not just two languages, but there were two cultures. Uh, the Hellenists thought and acted like Greeks. And the Hebraists, well, they'd been steeped in Jewish uh, culture. And 
These different cultures had uh, different ways of looking at life. And naturally, there was friction. There was tension uh, between them. And many of the Hebraic uh, Jews, being in the Holy Land, uh, being born and bred there, thought of themselves as better than people who weren't. So when many of the Hellenistic Jewish widows complained about being overlooked in the distribution of either food or money or both, they felt they were being discriminated against. And the murmuring spread. And it wasn't just the widows. Other people who were Hellenists uh, took up their uh, cause, and soon there was significant uh, tension. And you can imagine what was said. The apostles are playing favorites. Well, the apostles had been preaching and teaching and overseeing the distribution of the funds that had been contributed, and so naturally the blame was placed upon them. And, of course, they were beginning to be stretched thin. And they did what leaders often don't do. They listened. They recognized that something needed to be done and done quickly, that the widows must be cared for. They didn't say you know, we're just going to ignore this and it'll take care of itself. Or they didn't say, you know, caring for the widows just isn't as important. We have other things we ought to be about. No, the gospel created, because of its message, a concern for the poor, for the weak, for the defenseless, for the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 25. Just why does it do that? Well, because the gospel makes plain that spiritually speaking, everybody is poor and weak in their relationship with God. Paul puts it this way, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that so you by his poverty might become rich. Christ Uh, becomes poor and dying for us in order uh, to supply what we in our poverty, our spiritual poverty, cannot. And this changes us so that we become tender to those who are poor and weak and helpless, both spiritually and materially. Now, the gospel speaks to the problem of discrimination. That's, uh, in part, how people experienced what was taking place. Now, we live in a day and a time when the very use of that word, well, it rankles people. It's kind of a hot-button issue. Some people see discrimination everywhere. And other people say, no way. It's just not like that. Sure, maybe there's occasionally an isolated person who has a hostility towards someone who's different than them. But it's not widespread. They just won't uh, acknowledge that there's any kind of widespread thing. And as a result, people are talking past each other. And it's not just outside the church, it's in the church that we can't talk about this subject. It ought not to be like that. And perhaps the place to begin is to recognize that we need to listen to the pain that people have before we conclude what their experience must be.
be. That's what the apostles are doing. They're hearing the pain of the people in the church. You see, the gospel challenges and ultimately destroys all forms of discrimination because it affirms that every person has equal value and every culture is of value to God. And uh, this destroys discrimination because it strikes at the heart of discrimination, which is rooted in human pride. Pride says that we are better than other people. You don't have to look or think very hard to realize just how common lay people say this. Men have been saying they are superior to women for millennia. And perhaps women have also said the same thing about uh, men. You know, the word hysterical, it comes from the Greek word for uterus. It's a slam on women. That's, that's what it's saying. It's saying women are emotionally out of uh, control. Um, and, you know, men have their lists of women, about women. Women have their lists about uh, men when they're with the brotherhood and the sisterhood. And sometimes they throw these things at each other, especially if they happen to be in a relationship. You know, you can travel in many places of the world and the people that you will encounter are absolutely convinced that their culture or even their ethnicity makes them superior to all other people. Go to Japan or go to China and you will meet people who look at all other people as their inferiors, all other civilizations as their inferiors. And do Americans think of their way of life as better than all others? Well, they do, of course. We're exceptional. There's no one uh, like us, no country uh, like us. And of course, young people are of greater value than old people, right? Every one of you is an employer uh, knows that. You're going to hire people with young uh, minds that are able to learn. Um, and, you know, older people, well, actually maybe some of them do get passed up for jobs. When you get to be 50, 60, or 70 and are looking for work, you'll find out it's a lot harder to find work no matter what your qualifications will be. See, the gospel shows us that we are all morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so none of us can claim to be better than other people before God. And if you're a Christ follower, the question becomes, do you feel you're superior to others? If you're not sure that you ever have this thought, just ask the Holy Spirit to show you whether in fact you do look down on other people. Do you think your group, your ethnic group, your race is superior to others? If so, it's denial of the gospel. Now, the gospel gives us such grace that we ought to be able to talk about even the hardest of things, including race in the church. We ought to actually model for the world what it looks like to talk reasonably about these things instead of talking past each other. Well, the challenge present in our uh, story this morning in some form happens in every church uh, as it reaches people 
who are different than themselves. And the whole story of the book of Acts is as the gospel spreads, people not only who live in different places, but people of different ethnicities and different cultures and different classes are being reached. And the challenge is the challenge, and much of the story of the book of Acts deals with this challenge and is the challenge uh, for every church in an increasingly diverse world. Can uh, we embrace and value people who think, whose values, whose dress is different than our own. Now, this is the third story. They're just right in a row in uh, Acts where Luke takes up one of the attacks of Satan against the church. The first attack is opposition. It starts with threats and it escalates to beatings and it finally reaches the place where Christians are being put to death. And then last week we saw hypocrisy as we looked at Ananias and Sapphira. And here we have the threat of disunity. And this attack has a couple of parts to it. Let's look at the first one, the threat of disunity. Disunity is one of the chief criticisms leveled at the church. It ranks right up there with hypocrisy in the minds of many people. If Christianity is so true, why can't Christians get along with each other? Why are there so many denominations? Why do Christians who belong to one group uh, talk so negatively about Christians in another group? Of course, Jesus, as he goes uh, to the cross, prays uh, not just for his disciples, but for all of those who would believe through him. And when he gets to that part of the prayer, he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They may also be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. He's saying that the unity of the church validates uh, the message of the gospel. It actually validates Christ's claims to who he is. It demonstrates to people that something has broken into the world that cannot be accounted for. Uh, by people's natural affection uh, for each other. Jesus repeatedly said in the upper room, this is my new commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. He commands us to be reconciled to one another. Reconciliation is so important. In fact, it's more important than coming to public worship. Why? Well, because reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. To become a Christian, you've got to admit that you have a broken relationship between you and God. You are his enemy, and you can't make things right on your own. Whether it's your passive or active resistance, you have resisted the God and creator of the universe. And so your life is forfeit. But the gospel announces that God has acted to reconcile you to himself. He did this by becoming one of us and dying in our place. And this changes our relationships, not only between us and God, but with each other. God's love empowers a radical love in us so that we may love those who are different than us, who think differently than us, who irritate us who we don't even like. And God's forgiveness empowers a radical forgiveness because we feel the weight 
really the weight uh, of our own uh, transgressions and offenses against God and that God has lifted them. And so he's lifted such a massive offense uh, that we can uh, let go of the offenses we receive from others. And God's grace empowers us to be gracious and give people uh, the benefit of that. In fact, to look for the best in people. Ken Taylor uh, tells a little story to illustrate this truth. One hot uh, summer day, a family's traveling down the highway from uh, Johnstown to Jamestown, and they stop at Farmer Jones's uh, uh, stand and ask for a drink of water, and he gladly gives it to them, and he asks, where are you headed? And they say, well, we're moving from Johnstown uh, to Jamestown to live. Can you tell us what the people are like there? And he asks, well, what kind of people uh, did you find where you lived before? Oh, they were the very worst of kind. They were always gossipy and unkind and indifferent, and we were glad to move away. Well, I'm afraid you'll find the same kind of people in Jamestown. The next day, another car stopped. The same conversation took place. They, too, were moving to Jamestown. And he asked, what kind of neighbors? Uh, They asked, what kind of neighbors will we find there? Well, Farmer Jones said, what kind of neighbors did you have where you lived before? Oh, they were the very best. They were so kind and considerate, it broke our hearts to move away. Well, then you'll find exactly the same kind of people again. You see, it doesn't matter where you move, what church you uh, join. If you are so inclined to find fault with everything, you won't have any trouble finding fault wherever you live, whatever job you take, whatever church you join. Now, there may be a legitimate grievance and should be brought in a respectful uh, manner to those uh, that uh, have responsibility. But you see, it takes... Uh, It's the attitude and the word murmuring in our text. uh, It echoes with the stories of the wilderness generation as they murmured in uh, the wilderness. Under every threat to our unity is a, a satanic scheme to discredit the gospel. But there's another side to this satanic attack, and it's this. It's the threat of distraction with the result that the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the word would be neglected by the apostles. Now, if the apostles had simply responded uh, to this legitimate complaint by giving themselves more and more over to the administration of these gifts and caring for the widows, the preaching of the gospel would have been neglected. The mission of the church would have been sidetracked. And so a creative solution is put forward. Now, it's, a, it's a really very, very creative. The apostles don't say it's beneath our dignity to wait on tables, to administer uh, to the needs of these widows. Not at all. They are saying in this creative solution that deed ministry is just as essential as the ministry of the word. And the solutions uh, uh, that the congregation pick out seven men who will head this ministry. Now they understood their priorities, that no one else could do what Christ had tasked them to do. 
They uh, were uh, the primary and foundational witnesses uh, to the life and ministry of Jesus uh, Christ. And they were to lead the church and equip the church uh, so that they understood and carried out everything that Jesus had commanded them. And many churches would do well to note what a creative thing that happens here. David Peterson is a, is a famous New Testament scholar, and, and he comments on some of the lessons. He says, the early church was prepared to adjust its procedures, alter its organizational structure, and develop new positions of leadership in response to these needs that surfaced for the sake of gospel proclamation. Now today there's no apostles. No one has the authority in the church that they do. But their ministry's been handed down uh, to the elders. And it's a wise church that makes it possible for them to keep first things first. To protect their pastor's time so that he might give himself uh, to study and the ministry of the word and to prayer and to take off the shoulders of the elders as much as uh, possible, as much of the administration and and other essential ministry in the life of the church. And CRPC does a great job with giving uh, the pastor, the teaching elder, time uh, to do what only he can do. And this is really important. You're going to get a new pastor someday. And you need to be able to challenge him and say, Pastor, are you doing what only you can do? Or someone else, can they do that? Most small churches will let the pastor do anything that they want. I had a church that would let me cut the grass all the time. No Baptist church would have ever let their pastor cut the grass. (laughs) The men would have been ashamed. (laughs) You know, CRPC is blessed with hardworking elders and deacons. I'll stand them up to any church I've ever served in. And the deacons work very hard behind the scenes to free up the elders from many, many administrative responsibilities. But here's here's the thing. Christ intended that every member be a minister. Every member has gifts and talents and passions that if offered and developed will enable the church to keep its formal leaders focused on first things. So let me be very practical here. The transition team finished the vision statement last week, and it's working on a strategic plan. Now, the best plans are specific. They have specific goals. They are realistic. They're something you can actually do, and they have someone or a group of people who will own those things and see that they get happen. The officers cannot carry out this plan by themselves. Now this plan, you're going to hear this plan. You're going to have the opportunity to digest it, to interact with it, perhaps uh, to refine it. And then I hope that uh, all of you, the officers and the congregation, will ratify it. I want to ask you, would you pray that God would show you and make it possible for you to help take some part of this plan?
to own uh, some part of these goals. There's another lesson here. The church chose seven men who were to be of good repute, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And the names of seven are given. Stephen, we're also told, is full of faith in Philip. We're going to meet them uh, shortly. They play important roles in the advancement of the gospel. And the others we know nothing about except Nicholas. We're told that Nicholas, who's a Gentile, embraced Judaism as his religion. And then he became a Christian. He was not born in the Holy Land. He was born outside of it in a city named Antioch. He's the future of the church. Here he is, right here on the scene in Jerusalem. All seven have Greek names, and they all spoke Greek. Everyone in the Roman Empire uh, pretty much spoke Greek. But these men understood Greek culture. There was a cultural sensitivity in the selection of these uh, men. Not just Nicholas, but the whole lot of them. And this is really important uh, for you. If you're going to have a fruitful ministry in your Jerusalem and in your personal mission fields, because it's hard to believe that any of you live anywhere and work anywhere where you don't meet people who are of a different ethnicity, a different socioeconomic background, uh, perhaps a different uh, race, a different nationality. And it's going to be essential if you're going to reach these people that you become sensitized uh, to the cultures around you. Now, the place to begin is right here. It's right where we are. The place to begin is to develop or deepen a relationship with somebody who's different than you. Now, we all just naturally gravitate to be with people like ourselves. It's just so human, and Jesus doesn't want that. That's why he's put you together. He wants different people in your life and in my life. You know, if you would develop a friendship, perhaps it's with someone you know at work or in your neighborhood or deepen uh, one, an acquaintance, and go deeper and deeper and begin to understand uh, what life is like uh, for them, to begin to understand what it's like for them to live uh, here. And as a church, perhaps you need to think about how to honor uh, people's different cultures, One church, uh, some churches, take Pentecost Sunday and have people whose native language isn't English, and they take turns reading Acts 2. Another church, uh, during one of their fellowship meals, will have a special uh, time for someone from a a different nation or or culture uh, to share about their culture. Perhaps they might uh, wear traditional uh, dress, Uh, perhaps offer some traditional food, talk about what's different uh, from where they're from than life uh, here. Churches, some of them make room for the expression of these cultures in their shared uh, life. It's important to be creative and try uh, new things. The church in the book of Acts does that. That's the story, the book of Acts. The church uh, changes as it reaches new people. Another noteworthy thing here is the qualifications 
for the men that are chosen for this task. They're very similar to the qualifications for elders and deacons in the New Testament, although they are never called deacons. But often these qualifications are not the functional ones that actually govern the choice of people for formal leadership roles. If I can put it kind of informally, a lot of churches make their decision based on who can fog a mirror, who shows up regularly, perhaps is articulate. Probably in our circles, they're uh, well-read and they're willing. Eh, Just a little bit of willingness, doesn't have to be a lot. Um, Instead of character filled with the spirit, full, full of wisdom and faith, often they're really not the primary considerations. Now, this Thursday, when the session meets, I will be bringing to them, at their request, a plan uh, to train the next generation of leaders here at CRPC. And it's your uh, responsibility and privilege uh, to nominate people, and you can begin by encouraging people to, to pray about this. But may these four traits guide you above all else. So let me summarize some of the lessons that are here. The apostles listened to the community, even though it was grumbling. They listened to the pain that was present in the lives of people in their uh, community. They, They acknowledged there was a problem and acted to respond to it. They creatively guarded their priorities and they delegated responsibility to a new class of leaders. And they showed cultural sensitivity. The whole church did in putting these people forward, and they embraced them. And they utilized people of character who were spiritually minded, uh, full of wisdom and faith, people of solid character, character that even people outside the church respected. What was the impact of this? What happened as a result of this? Well, Luke tells us that the church grew. Both the ministry of the word and the ministry of deeds and mercy resulted in the gospel penetrating resistant groups. The Jewish priests were highly resistant to the ministry of Jesus. They were hostile to the apostles. They lead the charge in seeing that they're arrested and imprisoned and beaten. They have the most to lose if people embrace the gospel. And yet a great many priests become obedient to the faith. Why? Well, because the church cared for widows. They were doing what the priests themselves should have been uh, doing. The church gave not only to its own widows, but to their widows. And so the priests were willing to give the gospel a hearing. Now, it's so easy for the church to think that all we are is surrounded by resistant groups of people. But it's not possible to reach people anymore. There are so many people who claim that they have no interest or no affiliation with any kind of organized religion. We look at uh, people under 30 and we think they're so distracted and divided that there's just nothing we can do uh, to get them interested. We look about and see people who are dissatisfied and have left the church and we think, well, there's nobody left. But 
what we see here is of great encouragement to us. That when the church does what Jesus did, when there is a ministry both of word and deed, and that they are uh, together, they're not one is really strong and the other is really weak, but they are both present, then the gospel reaches people otherwise it would never reach. And I will say to you, church, that if you want to reach the next generation of young people, you have to have a deed ministry that's more than simply taking care of a few people in the congregation. You're going to have to find a way to have a deed ministry that people see that you care about somebody other than yourselves. And then people will give you hearing. And then you'll see the gospel reach people that you thought could never be reached. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, in your uh, kindness, we thank you for what we see in this passage. There's so many things uh, to see and so much for us uh, to take in. Be pleased to grant, Father, that in the days ahead that there'd be abundant creativity for the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. Uh, Grant, Father, that the gospel would so penetrate our lives, Lord, that we'd be able to have uh, conversations about hard things. That, Lord, where the church needs to try new things and do new things and empower people in a new way, we ask, Lord, uh, that you'd uh, be pleased to grant uh, that that would take a place. And protect us, Lord from murmuring and grumbling and disunity, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen.